You're listening to Comedy Central. October 8, 2019. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. was the national security advisor to President Barack Obama here to talk about her new memoir. Susan Rice is joining us on the show, everybody. It's gonna be a lot of fun. Also on tonight's show, the Pope is getting horny. Louis Black is here to fix healthcare, and Donald Trump is cock-blocking Congress. So let's catch up on today's headlines. Let's kick it off with Pope Francis, leader of the worldwide Catholic Church and president of the Tall Hat Club. Francis (laughs) has shaken up the church for years now. He said he doesn't judge gay people. He said your pets will go to heaven. And now he's considering maybe the biggest change yet. Pope Francis signaling a possible departure from a centuries-old tradition in the Catholic Church. The requirement of celibacy for priests is open for debate. During Mass yesterday, the Pope didn't refer to the celibacy issue, but warned if we spend our days content that this is the way things have always been done, then the gift vanishes, smothered by the ashes of fear and concern for defending the status quo. Oh, the Pope is considering getting rid of the celibacy rule for Catholic priests. And I'm gonna be honest, I'm happy about this, but it is gonna be a little bit weird when you start seeing your priest on Tinder. Yeah. He's gonna be there like, name of the father, the son. (laughs) Swipe left, swipe right. (laughs) Also, you know that priests having social lives is gonna affect their sermons, right? They're gonna be preaching up there like, we know from Genesis that it was just Adam and Eve. But if there was, say, a Zoe in the mix, Eve would understand. I mean, (laughs) she's talking to serpents and stuff. I also like it. I really like it because I think it's cool that the Pope is looking to update the church. You know, I think religion should always be updated. Uh, If he's interested, I actually have some suggestions of my own. You know, like, do we actually need to go to mass? It's 2019, maybe a podcast, like once a month, you know? (laughs) Yeah, just to mix things up. Also, why is the communion wafer so bland, huh? Jesus was from the Middle East. How about like a bowl of hummus just to go with it? You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Body of Christ, tasty. You see what I'm saying? And while we're at it, like that song, I mean, it's cool, but it's like, it's been so long. Domino, so like, just like update the whole thing. You know, just come on like, Domino, no, so no, 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 Let's move on from getting saved to getting wasted. Because if you enjoy fine whiskey, but you hate washing glasses, good news. Forget Tide Pods, there are now whiskey pods. Glenlivet uh, unveiling their new capsule collection saying no ice, no stir, no glass. We're redefining how whiskey can be enjoyed. The shot of whiskey is encased in a pod made of seaweed extract that's see-through. Company releasing them for London Cocktail Week. For now, they are not available for purchase in the US. Yes, finally, a whiskey you can hand out on Halloween. (laughs) Here you go, kids, wash down that candy with some of this. 
Although you have to admit, like, I get why they're doing it, but it does make drinking whiskey less cool. You know, can you imagine Don Draper yeah, being like, don't worry about the account. I have everything under control. <laughs> I think like whiskey pods make no sense, you know, because whiskey's not about speed. It's about enjoying it, you know, the flavor, the smoke, the conversation that goes with it. You can't condense that into a pod that explodes in your mouth. You're losing the ambiance. It's like going up to people watching a sunset and just being like, don't waste your time with that. I'll just blast this flashlight in your face. <laughs> it's the same thing. So I don't know. I think whiskey pods are not a good innovation. I'm still gonna get drunk the traditional way by soaking a tampon in vodka and putting it up my butt. All right, that's it for the headlines. Let's move on to our top story. It's how America tells a president, it's not me, it's you. And right now, a president with great and unmatched wisdom is fighting off an even greater and more unmatched uh, scandal. So let's catch up on all the latest updates with our ongoing segment, The Fantastic, Absolutely Tremendous Road to Impeachment. The only thing they can impeach me for is for having created the best economy. The big news today is that the White House has taken its fight with Congress to the next level, officially sending word that it will not participate in any aspect of the impeachment probe. Yeah, which is crazy. Like, Trump can't just decline to participate. Like, this is not the Vietnam War. (laughs) And this new tactic, this new tactic threw everything for a loop. Because you see, today was meant to be the big day when Congress would hear testimony from Gordon Sondland ambassador to the EU, and Jeff Ross stunt double. But just before the C-SPAN cameras started rolling, the White House pulled the plug. We're following breaking news this morning, and it's moving quickly. The White House blocking EU Ambassador Gordon Sondland from testifying to Congress just minutes before he was supposed to appear on Capitol Hill. He was set to testify behind closed doors as part of an ongoing impeachment inquiry into President Trump, uh, specifically about his interactions with Ukraine. Democratic House Intelligence Chairman calling the move to keep Sondland from speaking to lawmakers, quote, strong evidence of obstruction. Wow. Donald Trump's White House blocked an ambassador from testifying to Congress. What a completely innocent thing to do. Yeah, Yeah, I bet Trump was probably just scared that that ambassador would exonerate him too much. You know, Trump's like, I gotta maintain my bad boy image if I'm gonna run these streets. (laughs) So, at the president's behest, Sondland pulled out of this impeachment hearing, which is a big deal. Because although many people haven't heard of Gordon Sondland, it appears that everything Trump wanted from Ukraine went through him. There's almost no one who was more involved in pushing the president's priorities in Ukraine than Gordon Sondland. Even before President Trump spoke to the president of Ukraine, Gordon Sondland, the U.S. ambassador to the EU, had been pushing the Ukrainians to commit to investigations Mr. Trump wanted. The ambassador to the EU, Gordon Sondland, worked behind the scenes to help carry out Trump's wishes in Ukraine, a country that isn't even in the EU. Okay, that's your first red flag right there. (laughs) Trump's ambassador to the EU was getting involved with a country that isn't in the EU? That's not his jurisdiction. Yeah, that would be like Santa doing the tooth fairy's job. That's not cool. (laughs) Yeah, because then it's just a creepy old man standing over your kid's bed. Yeah. You just be like, what are you doing? He's like, whoa, 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 nothing weird. I'm just, (laughs) I'm just buying your kid's teeth. Okay, now that I say it out loud, it sounds weird. (laughs) The tooth fairy asked, God damn it, that guy killed me. 
And the reason Congress is so intent on having Sondland testify isn't just because he was at the center of this Ukraine scandal, right? It's also because he has text messages that show what was going on behind the scenes. Text messages given to Congress show Sundland and another diplomat discussing a possible link between investigations and aid to Ukraine. On September 9th, Bill Taylor, the top U.S. diplomat to Ukraine, texts, I think it's crazy to withhold security assistance for help with a political campaign. Sondland responds, I believe you are incorrect about President Trump's intentions. The president has been crystal clear, no quid pro quos of any kind, adding, I suggest we stop the back and forth by text. Taylor texts Gordon Sondland. Are we now saying that security assistance and White House meeting are conditioned on investigations? Sondland responds, call me. Okay, I, I don't know if these guys are guilty or not, but you have to admit those texts look hella suspicious. <laughs> yeah, because the only time you say, stop texting, let's talk on the phone, is when something shady is going down, right? It's 2019. No one talks on the phone. The only reason to talk on the phone at all is to wish your grandmother a happy birthday or to commit crimes. <laughs> or to commit crimes with your grandmother on her birthday. <laughs> Just like, all right, Nana, you tell me who wins at bingo and I'll take care of the rest. <laughs> at the same time, I don't blame Sondland for wanting to shut down those texts because do you see what's happening there? The guy he's texting with is being so explicit about everything. He's like, I don't think it's a good idea to commit this crime. It's like, yo, 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 yo. <laughs> You know who he reminds me of? He reminds me of that one guy on every bachelor party group chat who has no chill. Everyone else is playing it cool, and he's like, I am excited to do the cocaine tomorrow, guys. <laughs> See you at the cocaine and the hookers. It's like, yo, 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 delete, delete, delete. <laughs> now, in response to the stonewalling, the Democrats have issued a subpoena to Ambassador Sondland, but that may take months or longer to wind its way through the courts. In the meantime, Congress is also hoping to hear testimony from the whistleblowers. And remember, there are now two whistleblowers, right? There's the first whistleblower who has secondhand information and the secondhand and the second whistleblower who has firsthand information. And then of course you've got the confessions from Trump, which I guess is small hand information. I don't know how this works. <laughs> now normally, normally getting testimony from a whistleblower might not be such a big deal. But this time, they're talking about taking extra precautions to conceal this person's identity. And it could be because the whistleblower is just shy or maybe it's because the president has implied they should be executed. I don't know. Either way, <laughs> Democrats are looking at some novel ways to ensure the whistleblower's safety. The House Intelligence Committee is taking extreme measures to protect the whistleblower from a president itching to learn his identity. And this country has to find out who that person was, because that person's a spy, in my opinion. There are growing concerns about the whistleblower's safety. It's still unclear when the whistleblower might talk to lawmakers, but the committee is considering using an off-site location, limiting staff and members who could be present. Possible steps include a remote location for testimony and perhaps masking the person's face or voice. Wow, masks and fake voices just to make sure that Trump doesn't know who this person is. Seems a bit extreme. I mean, all they really need to do is disguise the whistleblower as Trump's daughter, Tiffany. And he'd be like, who is this person? I've never seen her before in my life. <laughs> now, I understand why Congress is being so careful here. I mean, this is serious stuff. I also think at the same time, this could be a big opportunity for the Democrats. Because I mean, if you're gonna be disguising the whistleblower, why not just take this thing one step further and turn it into the TV event of the year? Coming soon, a top secret incremental hearing in the impeachment process will have everyone asking who 
is a mass whistleblower. A sworn testimony that will have committee members and our celebrity panel guessing. Donald Trump used the power of the presidency to try and dig up dirt on his political rival. I'm so freaking confused right now. I don't know who I am. The president is trying to hide evidence that he engaged in an illicit quid pro quo. Woo! This fall, everyone will be asking who's behind the mask. The Masked Whistleblower, coming soon to Congress. through the cracks. Lewis Black catches it for a segment we call Back in Black. Everybody hates the American healthcare system. It's expensive, it's broken, and it's the reason I do all my own dental work. You can't tell, but all my teeth are Tic Tacs. But on top of being awful, we're now learning our healthcare system is also disgustingly deceptive. Tonight, millions of Americans rushed to the emergency room, then slammed with surprise bills. Nearly 65% of hospitals across the country use emergency rooms staffed by outside companies. It's a loophole that allows providers to charge patients more because the ERs are considered out of network. Liv Cannon, who had insurance and even verified that her hospital and doctors were in network before the procedure, was on the hook for nearly $94,000. Huh, a surprise bill for $94,000? For that kind of money, I better come out of surgery as a goddamn transformer. <laughs> then I could turn into an ambulance and take myself to the hospital for free. <laughs> and what's all this crap about doctors being out of network? If you're not in my network, then get your finger out of my ass. And not only are hospitals robbing us blind, the worst part is they're making all of these prices up. Even if it's not an emergency, we found there can be surprising swings in what a given procedure or test can cost. The cost for an ultrasound of the abdomen in Dallas ranged from $115 to an estimate of $2,459. From $100 in the Bay Area, to $2,800. And where the price is set can affect your cost, whether insured or not. Anywhere from $100 to $3,000? Who is setting these prices? Contestants on the prices, right? $3,000, $100, everybody's right. Well, guess what? I can make up numbers too. How about I pay $1, asshole? So, so hospitals and insurance companies want to keep prices a secret. But luckily, a surprising hero wants to make a buck. So they're putting costs out in the open. Groupon, famous for deals on everything from skydiving to concert tickets, is now offering patients discounted medical treatments. And it could help you avoid the headache of a surprise medical bill. 
Patients can find $91 mammograms in Atlanta and $54 heart scans in Oklahoma City. Chest CT scans can sometimes cost over $1,700 depending on where you live. With a Groupon at Crown Valley Imaging near LA, you pay a flat rate of 299 bucks. So that's where we've gotten to. We have to rely on shitty websites for our health care. Boy, that's gonna be fun. I think I'm having a heart attack. Uh, hold on, let me see if Groupon has a deal. <laughs> Great, I'll get one heart surgery and a yoga class. <laughs> now obviously Congress should outlaw surprise medical bills, but obviously Congress won't do shit. That's why I took matters into my own hands and started the Lewis Black Clinic. Are you tired of surprise medical bills? Then come on down to the Lewis Black Clinic. You won't find any surprise bills with me because at my clinic, everything costs $100. No matter what, liver transplant, $100. Open heart surgery, $100. A candy bar, $100. And that better be in cash. You took the wrong hand. <laughs> yes, but we didn't take your savings. Thanks. <laughs> and at my clinic, you'll never be surprised by a diagnosis because I'll warn you ahead of time. Bad news, you've got herpes. You haven't even looked at the test results. No, but you just look like a guy with herpes. <laughs> so stop by the Lewis Black Clinic. The only surprise will be if you leave feeling better. Lewis Black, everyone. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Daily Show. My guests tonight have helped shape policy and foreign policy under two U.S. presidents, most, rec most recently serving as national security advisor and ambassador to the United Nations under President Obama. Her new memoir is called Tough Love, my story of the things worth fighting for. Please welcome Susan Rice. <laughs> welcome back to the show. It's great to be back. It has Thanks been so a much. while since I have seen you. I, the last time you were here on the show was, I guess, maybe three days before the presidential election. Did you see any of this coming? Anything that we're living through right now? I kind of did see it coming. Not what we're living through now, but the possibility that Trump could get elected, as I, I write about in the book. Right. But, you know, those times, just think back. It was a time before we were all losing our mind on a daily basis. Those it was like, times. it was normal. Right. You know? And now, gee whiz. Or Jesus Christ, more accurately. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. I mean, you know, in the, in the book, you, you, you talk about your personal life, and I want to get into that, but, but when you look at the, 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 the White House today, you get these stories coming out all the time of, you know, uh, officials speaking out, saying this is a crazy environment to work in, things are freaking me out. Is that par for the course? Is that what happens in a White House? Is it just like a manic environment, or is this a special time and, and a, a strange White House America's experiencing? This is not normal. This is beyond strange. 
I mean, yes, the White House is an intense place to work. The jobs are tough, blah, blah, blah. Right. But, you know, people aren't crazy. And <laughs> you, you don't wake up thinking that, oh, my God, tomorrow everything could just literally fall apart. So this, this, it's important for Americans to understand that this is not normal. That's part of what I hope people will get out of this book, is that, you know, there is a way that national security decision-making is supposed to be made. Mm -hmm. There's a way a responsible White House is supposed to work. There's a way policy gets made that is actually supposed to be conducted in the interests of the American people, right. rather than the interests of one man for his own personal political or financial gain. We are in totally, we're in the twilight zone. Wow. <laughs> wow. The book, Tough Love, tells your story in a way that I think you've never told it before. You know, many people have seen you in positions of power. Many people have seen you advising President Obama or working on the Clinton side of things. But, but this story is, is, is really personal in a way that I, I don't think I expected. I mean, you, you talk about your parents being divorced and how that affected yourself, your life, your, your, you know, your, your decisions you made growing up. I mean, you, you talk about, for instance, being hungover uh, and then having to brief President Obama and like, you didn't expect this and now you're in the beast and all of a sudden it's like, your vacation's cut short. It's like, you're briefing them. Like, why did you choose to share some of those stories? Especially the hungover one. Well, Trevor, I wanted to tell my story in my own words. And I, I felt, you know, while I was in government, particularly after Benghazi, where I was characterized and mischaracterized by both sides, that I couldn't speak for myself because I was still representing the United States. I was still speaking on behalf of the president. So when I had the opportunity to tell my own story, I wanted to do it honestly. It's I mean, interesting I think that you, yeah, you say that as well, but what I liked, if I may interject, is that you also said, you said, depending on what news people were watching, they either vilified me or they created this idea of me being a hero. And, 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 and you said, neither is true. I found that really interesting. Why did you say that? because neither is true. They're un they were uninformed by who I actually am. I mean, if, to understand me, it, it's really important to understand my family mm -hmm. and where I came from. And that's why I spend some time in the beginning talking about how I'm the granddaughter of immigrants from Jamaica who came to the United States in 1912 with nothing and went to Portland, Maine and educated all five of their kids who mm -hmm. went on to be very successful professionals. And how, on the other hand, on my father's side, I'm the daughter of the descendants of slaves and my father, who grew up in the, the most, you know, brutal part of Jim Crow segregation, and then had to fight and serve in World War II at Tuskegee with, as part of the Tuskegee Airmen. And, you know, he couldn't get served off base, but yet German POWs were getting served off base. Wow. So this, this, all of this background informed who I am. And you talked about my parents' divorce. I mean, having to go through that, and as a kid, intervening when they were, you know, fighting in a violent fashion to try to, you know, calm them down and mm -hmm. protect my little brother and all this stuff. So that all informed who I am. So if I was going to tell my story, the only way to do it was to be honest. And I did, you know, I gave everything that I could in that. Now, talking about being hungover, that wasn't that hard to include. I mean, <laughs> first of all, we're all human, right? And this was the, one of the very, it was actually the last night of President Obama's last foreign trip. We were in Lima, Peru, mm -hmm. and you know, Trump had won, 
you know, we had to execute this transition. And the Obama team knows how to party and knows how to celebrate. <laughs> and we... We took over this club in Lima, took over the top floor, drank more Pisco Sours per capita than, you know, than most people could do, and then just danced to R&B and hip-hop until about three in the morning. That is hilarious. I got back to my room, crashed. I was one of the few people who had to really get up early because I had to be with the president when he started his meetings. Right. I got out of bed and literally my knees buckled. And I thought, okay, this is not about being hungover. This is about having done too many low moves on the dance floor. <laughs> uh, and I could barely walk to the shower. By the time I hobbled into the limousine, known as the Beast, to see the president, he asked, as he always does, so, you know, what happened last night? And I said, Mr. President, you missed a hell of a party. <laughs> and none of us are going to be in top form today. <laughs> and, you know, he always, oh. he always wished that he could have a little fun, but he had to stay in his hotel room and act presidential. Let me, let me ask you this about that. One thing that I did pick up in the book is there was definitely a personal relationship between President Obama and all of the people who worked for and with him. It's an interesting relationship because there's a respect that seems mutual, and then there is also a level of understanding who's in charge and what needs to be done. I've been particularly interested about what's happening in the Trump White House, you know, when it comes to leaks. You know, regardless of whistleblowers, but just like the leaks. Some people say the leaks are holding Trump back from being a president because a White House cannot function effectively if you're leaking every step of what is happening uh, along the way. Do you think the leaks are a good thing? Do you think they're a bad thing? Do you think people should have blind loyalty? How do you think it should work when you're working with a president in the White House? Well, first of all, if you talk to journalists, and I have a number of friends who cover the White House, they'll tell you that Trump's the leaker in chief. He's the one putting out a lot of this stuff. And then you've got, you know... So eight... he leaks to journalists, just yes. to confirm. So he, he's the yeah, leaker. So he when they go a source big... in the White House, he is a... they're talking about him. He is... Re... <laughs> yeah. He is reputedly the source of a lot of leaks. Now, I'm, there are others. I'm not su suggesting right, right, they're right. not. Um, but what's also so depressing about the Trump White House is somebody who's worked in a White House. These are hard jobs. And yet, everybody there is stabbing everybody else in the back. Nobody can trust the guy in the office or the woman down the hall not to be screwing them to the press. And that there's this sort of sense of, you know, everybody trying to destroy everybody else. Mm -hmm. And Trump being the one that you, you don't know if you're going to come into work one day and, you know, halfway through the day, he tweets that you're gone. Wow. So think about that. Uh, so, look, I don't like leaks. I think leaks are a bad thing. And when I was national security advisor, you know, I got really pissed if people were leaking stuff. And they right. didn't do much because we had a tight ship and we were loyal to each other and we had each other's backs. And that made those tough jobs much, much more tolerable and often a whole lot of fun. The, the Ukraine call is an interesting one because part of the argument coming from the Democrats has been it was particularly suspicious because Donald Trump and his team placed this call on a code word server, a more secure server that isn't regularly used for calls, regular calls that don't have um, sensitive information. But the Trump team has said, yes, it's not regularly done, but we get leaked on so much that 
we have to find a different way to keep this information away from people. So is there merit to that argument? No, let me explain why. First of all, the regular National Security Council computer system is highly classified, up to top secret level and beyond. That's the regular That's one. That's the regular Got one. Got it. So this one we're talking about is super, super duper secret. Got it. Okay? Uh, that's a technical term. Yes, I'm with you. <laughs> so um, there are two ways to manage it. You put it on the regular server, and mm-hmm. you can still limit distribution. I see. You know, it, you don't have to hide it on a super secret server to limit distribution. That's you know, normally the people who get a copy of the transcript are the people who have a reason to know what happened on the call. Mm-hmm. So that's a limited circle in the first place. But I think the Trump people made a mistake, frankly, at the very beginning of the administration, where they didn't know how the system worked. And they, I think, blasted call transcripts across the entire national So they just, like, account. hit reply all with every like call. That. That's what you're saying. That's what I'm saying. And they, they got burnt. But they didn't need to go to that extreme to solve right, that problem. Right, right, right. Let me ask you this. If you were, and I know this is a crazy question. Don't even go there. I know where you're going. <laughs> Come on, man. If you, if you were, if you were advising in this White House, not about the politics of like, you know, the, the, not, not the Trump side of thing, but let's talk about like, for instance, Syria. If you were advising in and around Syria okay. and the military decisions that are being made right now, Donald Trump has been blasted from all sides, right? Republicans have come out Rightly like we've so. never seen them before. Democrats have come out. The Kurdish forces have come out. People have all said, Donald Trump, what have you done? Except Putin... Assad and Turkey. Funny that, eh? Right. So, <laughs> do you think that he betrayed the Kurdish forces if his argument is, I didn't have a deal, that was another deal from a different president. I didn't have a deal with the Kurdish forces. Okay, wait a minute. First because, of all, because Trump it's and his not people... about I. The whole problem with Trump is it's all about I. It's not an America first foreign policy. It's a me first foreign policy. The United <laughs> States... The United States of America had an understanding with the Kurds, which he has honored for two and a half years. And it, yes, it began under President Obama. We worked with the Kurds. They did the fighting in effect for us to take out ISIS. Now we have turned around because Donald Trump woke up on the wrong side of the bed or President Erdogan of Turkey promised him something and I'm actually really curious to know what it was, in order for him to sell these guys out without consulting anybody on his national security team. And what is going to happen now is not only will we have broken our word and left these people vulnerable to Turkish invasion, and these Turks want to kill the Kurds. I mean, it's that simple. Uh, But also, there are some 10,000-plus ISIS fighters, terrorists, who are the Kurds have been holding in detention. As prisoners, yes. And now they have to go defend themselves without the United States against the Turks. Do you think they're gonna be paying attention to those prisoners? Or do you think maybe they're a little bit pissed and they just might lose the key? That's 10,000 or more hardcore terrorists who have the United States and Europe in their crosshairs that Donald Trump has just let go. For what? That's why everybody's so pissed. This is serious as a heart attack. Wow. When you look at Trump then, <laughs> if you have to. It's really and, 
It's not my preference. And, and, he says, and he says, listen, I think America was in too many wars. I don't want to fight with Iran. I don't want to be fighting in Syria. I don't want to be fighting anywhere in the... We fight too many wars. That's what Donald Trump says. Do you think that there is merit to that? Or do you think America is just damned to be the police of the world? Well, here's where Trump is misleading the American people. We've learned in the Obama administration that there's more than one way to fight terrorists. We don't have to deploy large numbers of American ground forces as we did in Iraq Mm -hmm. uh, in the Bush administration to deal with a terrorist threat, or in that case, Saddam, followed by a terrorist threat. We can work, as the military would say, by, with, and through partners. These Kurds were our partners. They were doing the fighting. We were doing the advising and the logistical support and the air cover. It was a very economical and effective way to do it. We're talking about hundreds of troops, not thousands of troops. But those hundreds were key to giving the Kurds confidence that we remain with them and to keeping an eye on ISIS and on those prisoners. So this was not a case where the president could say, I'm bringing thousands of American troops home. Mm -hmm. No. He left our partners hanging. He put America at much greater risk because these prisoners are going to either leave and come and get us or our partners, or they're going to reconstitute on the ground and continue to, to be a presence that we thought we had put in the box. Let me ask you this before I let you go. We got to end on a much more optimistic note. <laughs> let me ask you this. Writing a book is a really interesting process because you almost relive your life from the beginning to the day that you put the pen down. When you looked back on everything that you've done, everything that you've achieved, everything that you were a part of, is there anything you wish you could have done differently? <laughs> Many. <laughs> one thing that you wish you had done differently in your role in government. What is one thing where you go like, man, I, that thing, I, I wish I could have done that better or differently, or I, I, would have, I would have tweaked the way I saw the world. What would it have been? Well, I write in this book about how my mother warned me not to go on the Sunday shows in 2012 when I went on to talk about Benghazi. Interesting. And she perceived what I didn't, which is that, you know, I was thinking about, I've been, I'm on the team, the team has asked me to do it, I wasn't, that wasn't my plan, blah, blah, blah. I was going to take my kids to the Ohio State football game Mm -hmm. that weekend, and I actually did because I made a promise and I wanted to keep it. But I came back and agreed to do the Sunday shows because Secretary Clinton uh, apparently was exhausted and didn't feel uh, that she wanted to do it. And... My mother tried to convince me. She literally said, I smell a rat. You shouldn't do this. And the rat was not that somebody was setting me up. Her perception was that when you're in a crisis and you're the first person to go out and share that information, that information is inevitably going to change and the messenger uh, will be assailed, not right. just the message. And she was right. And uh, I think maybe others uh, of my colleagues perceived that better than I did, too. Wow. But so the lesson, everybody, is listen to your mother. <laughs> and, Whether you're in government or at home, and, listen to your mother. Thank and you that's so what much. I tell my kids. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming Thank back you to the so show. Much. Tough Love is available now. And that's what she's going everybody. Thank you so much. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, ears edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. 
follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast. 